0: good morning i miss you all and i know you miss each other i continue to pray that our time and isolation from one another physically might might uh, come to an end soon but god is continuing to do marvelous things in our midst and in his flock whom he he loves he's a perfect shepherd let's pray before we go to god's word dear father we come before your throne of grace this morning to sit at your feet and to listen to you so we will rightly understand and respond to the things that are happening to us and all around us. This morning we especially ask that you would open our eyes to see what you are doing in the lives of men and women and children who don't yet know you. So that we may be useful to you as you continue through us, your church, the gracious work of Jesus to seek and to save that which was lost. We ask that this in his name and for his glory. Amen. This is the last message, uh, at least according to plan, the last message in our short series, Making Sense of a Pandemic. God has not been silent. Next Sunday, Lord willing, uh, we'll resume our study in the book of Jeremiah. We still have a few more important and powerful things to get to in that book. My title this morning is The God Who Purposes. The God Who Purposes. When we were praying together at an elders meeting just a couple of weeks ago, my brother Steve... Novakovich used three words in reference to God's activity in the world. Permitted, caused, and purposed. Permitted, caused, and purposed. It was that third verb that really got my attention. The debate about the distinction between what God permits and what God causes is endless in every sense of the word. There's no end to the arguments, and the arguments don't end anywhere. They add nothing to our understanding of what's going on around us. And that's because it's quite impossible for us to determine in many, if not most, cases whether God directly caused an event or used some instrument in His creation to bring it about. The one and only way that we know, for instance, that God gave Satan permission to severely afflict Job is because God comes right out and tells us in that that book. He tells us that that was something that He allowed. We know that God caused countless events that are recorded in the Bible because the Holy Spirit, speaking through the prophets and apostles, told us that He caused them. But when God hasn't told us whether He directly caused an event or permitted it, all our agonizing over which it is ends up being completely pointless. And yet the debate goes on without end. If there was ever a time when that question was being very hotly debated, it's right now, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Did God permit it, or did God cause it? <clears throat> I lean toward the latter, but heavily, but <laughs> let me get to the point. My assertion this morning based on the passage we're about to look at is that the answer to that question is not what the church or the world needs to know. Let me be real clear about that. We do not need to know whether God caused an event or allowed an event. What we need to know is that God purposes every single event that occurs in all of his creation. He uses everything in His creation to accomplish His perfect will. Everything that happens is purposeful. Whether the thing itself is good or bad, even good or evil, God has an eternally good purpose for it that absolutely will be accomplished in full. And we will never rightly interpret the things that go on in this world if we don't know that and we don't understand that He is purposeful. That applies to our sin. God has an eternally good purpose for allowing Adam to sin and allowing Adam's sin nature to infect all the rest of mankind. The same applies to the curse that God imposed on mankind and on creation because of our sin. God has an eternally good purpose for every manifestation of the curse in His creation. The temporary outworking of that curse includes hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, tsunamis, the Black Plague, the Spanish flu, and even COVID 19. The unbeliever who has steadfastly dismissed the God of the Bible because of all the terrible things that he sees going on in the world really doesn't care whether Christians are saying that God caused those terrible things or allowed them. Either way, Those unbelievers reason that such a God is not worthy of any of our attention. In our conversations with unbelievers, we tend to spend a lot of time and a lot of words trying to parse out for people what God caused and what He allowed in an effort to avoid making God look bad. But the world really doesn't care which it is. As long as we are rightly saying that God is sovereign over everything that happens in His creation, it doesn't matter to an unbeliever whether He caused or allowed some calamity, as long as He could have prevented it. If He couldn't have prevented it, He's wimpy and impotent and unworthy of anybody's trust or worship. And if He could have prevented it but didn't, they say He's uncaring or cruel. They readily dismiss any God who would permit something like a pandemic to happen. Any God who would deliberately cause such a thing, (laughs) they don't want to have anything to do with him. I know there are different, different patterns of logic among unbelievers, but this one is very, very prevalent. But what they're missing, beloved, what they are missing from God's clear and emphatic revelation about himself is his purpose In all that happens. If I allow or even engineer a painful or even temporarily harmful event in the life of my own child in order to protect him from permanent harm or death, does that make me an evil, uncaring, unloving parent or does it make me a good, caring, loving parent? Let's say I'm a world-class rock climber, I know that's a very big stretch, and my preteen son wants to follow in my footsteps, literally. As I'm teaching him to climb and to repel, he keeps being really sloppy with his rigging, and I know that if he doesn't quickly unlearn the bad habits he's teaching himself and replace them with the good and disciplined habits that I keep insisting on, he's going to end up dead at the bottom of a cliff someday. So in one of our first lessons together, while keeping a very close eye on him, I let him mess up his rigging due to his own laziness, and I let that error run its course. I'm not going to let him get very high on the rocks before I intervene, but after only about five feet of climbing, he falls right to the ground at a really bad angle, and he sprains his ankle in the process. But from that day forward, He is amazingly disciplined about rigging by the rules. And I know He's going to be safe. Now, does that make me an evil father or a good father? God's purposes are not about anything as mundane or temporarily useful as teaching us to safely climb rocks. God's purposes are about turning the hearts of men, women, and children to Himself, where all true blessing lies. God made us for Himself. I said earlier in this series that if we get what those five simple words actually mean, He made us for Himself, we will finally begin to rightly interpret the millions of things that happen on this earth. For the rest of our time this morning, I want you to shift your thinking to God's good purposes toward the lost through the temporary effects of the curse, including events like this present pandemic. This morning, we're going to consider just one chapter, one of many in the Bible, that explicitly declares God's good purposes toward an entire nation of people that had turned its back on Him, and that nation. Is Egypt. And what we're going to see in this astonishing chapter, Isaiah 19, is what John Piper calls the thunderclap of divine mercy in the midst of judgment, calling all people, in this case every Egyptian, to repent, to turn their hearts to their Creator and only Savior in whom they will find everlasting blessing beyond measure. What does God say will happen to Egypt in this chapter, Isaiah 19? Well, let's look. It's quite a list. Verse 1, the oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord, Yahweh, is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at His presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. God declares right up front, He's going to come to Egypt riding on a swift cloud. There's no ambiguity about who's going to be doing the things that God is about to declare. He is. Second, God will make the idols of Egypt tremble at His presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt in fear at His presence. That has happened before, by the way. Remember the ten mighty plagues that caused the Egyptians with trembling hands to turn over the spoils of Egypt, gold and silver and valuable linens and all manner of, of, of expensive and valuable things to a bunch of unarmed Jewish slaves. <laughs> Why did they do that? Because of the fearsomeness of Israel's God. And in case you're wondering, that fear of Israel's God was the wisest thing that ever happened in Egypt. And stay tuned, because it's going to happen again. Verse 2, So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will each fight against his brother and each against his neighbor, city against city and kingdom against kingdom. Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them, and I will confound their strategy." so that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and to mediums and spiritists. Verse 2 says God is going to turn Egyptians against Egyptians. Both individuals and entire cities and entire regions of Egypt will be opposing each other. And who will make that happen? Is there any question in verse 2? I, God, will incite Egyptians against Egyptians. Verse 3 says that this intervention of God will cause the spirit of the Egyptians to be demoralized within them. They will strategize. They will diligently work to come up with ways to reduce or eliminate the harsh effects of the judgment that God is bringing upon them. But their strategy will change nothing about God's judgment against them. So they'll adjust their strategy not by turning their hearts to god but by seeking out other supposedly supernatural powers like idols and ghosts of the dead and mediums and spiritists but that won't work either because because seeking provision and security in something that doesn't exist doesn't work verse 4 says moreover I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master, and a mighty king will rule over them. Egypt, a nation that had gotten into the habit and expectation of making other nations subservient, would find itself on the other side of that equation. And who would make that happen? Is there any question in verse 4? I, God, will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master, and a mighty king will rule over them. Verse 5, And the waters from the sea will dry up, and the river will be parched and dry, and the canals will emit a stench. The streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up. The reeds and rushes will rot away. The bulrushes by the Nile, the edge of the Nile, and all the sown fields by the Nile will become dry be driven away, and be no more. And the fishermen will lament, and all those who cast a line into the Nile will mourn, and those who spread nets on the waters will pine away. Moreover, the manufacturers of linen made from combed flax and the weavers of white cloth will be utterly dejected, and the pillars of Egypt will be crushed, and all the hired laborers will be grieved in soul. God says He's going to dry up the natural resources on which Egypt depended for sustenance. Without the Nile River, most of Egypt would be a barren desert. When it comes to sustaining physical life, the Nile is Egypt's lifeline. The long and wide river feeds life and commerce throughout the region. And the Nile River Delta is one of the most fertile and productive Areas in that part of the world that's known as the Fertile Crescent. These verses declare that God will dry up the Nile River so that every fisherman who casts a line into the river will mourn because there's nothing there but a parched valley where the river used to be. And don't miss the economic impact, the economic impact of this intervention by God and His creation. God will overturn the economy. Of Egypt. He says in, he says, those who cast a line will pine away, cast a line onto the Nile will pine away. He says, the manufacturers of linen made from combed flax, the weavers of cloth will be utterly dejected. The hired laborers will be grieved in soul. He says in a later verse, verse 15, He says, there will be no work for Egypt, there will be no work for Egypt which its head or its tail, its palm branch or its bulrush may do. Notice in verses 9 and 10 which of the many impacts of this judgment of God is is God focusing on. He's focusing on what the judgment will do in the hearts of people. Verse 9 the manufacturers of linen made from comb and flax, the weavers of white cloth will be utterly dejected. The hired laborers will be grieved in soul. God, God's purpose has to do with what's going on in the hearts of men. Now, who will make these things happen? Well, is there any ambiguity about the answer to that question in this passage? Right after saying in verse 15 that there will be no work for, the, for Egypt, verse 16 says, In that day the Egyptians will become like women, and they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving of the hand of Yahweh of hosts which He is going to wave over them. While all these things are happening, Egypt's leaders will be foolish, deluded, and useless to help their people. Verse 11 says, The princes of Zon are mere fools. The advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors has become stupid. How can you men say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings. Well then, where are your wise men? Please let them tell you and let them understand what Yahweh of hosts has purposed against Egypt. What would constitute wisdom on the part of Egypt's leaders? They would understand what God has purposed against their nation. The princes of Zoan... Have acted foolishly, verse 13. The princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstone of her tribes have led Egypt astray. And verse 14 says, The Lord has mixed within her a spirit of distortion. You could think of that as that they become twisted in their reasoning. He says, They have led Egypt astray in all that it does, as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. That's what the leaders will be doing. What does verse 14 say will make the rulers of Egypt twisted in their reasoning so that their strategies are stupid and their understanding is non-existent? Well, again, is there any ambiguity in verse 14 about God's answer to that question? He says, Yahweh has mixed within her A twisted reasoning. Verse 17 adds yet another impact of this judgment. It says, And the land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of Yahweh of hosts which He is purposing against them. God will make Egypt fear Judah instead of the other way around as it, had so long been. The irony of that is enormous, considering how many times Israel wanted to go to Egypt to find security and provision, starting with right after God freed them from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Now Egypt's going to be afraid of Judah. Why? Because of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What will be the cause of all these terrible events that will befall Egypt? There's only one cause given in the chapter. It's the same cause over over and over. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at His presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Verse 16 again, the waving of the hand of Yahweh of armies which He is going to wave over them. That's what will make these things happen. And the one and only explanation given for those events in the passage, the purpose of God toward the people of Egypt. Verse 17, second part, I'll read the whole verse. And the land of Egypt will become a terror, the land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of Yahweh of hosts, which he is purposing against them. God's purpose is toward the people. It's toward the souls of men, women, and children, and that's God's explanation here. That's His revealed purpose. And what is that purpose? What is that purpose? To turn the hearts of the people of Egypt to Himself. To turn the hearts of those who did not know him and did not follow him and did not seek him to himself. I go back to the same five words. He made us for himself. He made us for himself. That explains a million things that happened and that happened in God's creation. Whatever happened to acts of God... <laughs> I want to take just a few minutes to clarify something that we as God's agents and ambassadors on earth need to get right. It's about the distinction between the activity of God's creation and the activity of God in His creation. To put it in the form of a question, which of the things that happen in our experience are the activity of creation and which are the activity of God in His creation? That's pretty important for understanding something like what's going on right now. What we're really talking about is who's actually sitting in Mother Nature's seat? And does she even exist? What answer does this passage set before us over and over? Well, again, even before you get to anything else, verse 1 settles the question. Behold, Yahweh, is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt, the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. The waving of the hand of Yahweh of hosts is what will cause these things. So, where is Mother Nature in that paradigm? Where are so-called natural disasters in that paradigm? The answer is nowhere. If you read the waiver clauses in various contracts you'll generally find some kind of clause uh, uh, some kind of language about acts of god. Many in the insurance and legal profession still use that phrase to describe events that are not caused by human beings that result in catastrophic damage or disrupt- disruption. Acts of god and they've got that exactly right. Only problem is they they don't believe that anymore. Many of them don't. Here's a question and, and, and I really I want to get your attention at this point. how often how often does the Bible explain a so-called natural disaster, a calamity, a plague, a pestilence, a flood, an earthquake, an invasion by a fearsome army in any other way than the hand of God deliberately acting in his creation? either to judge, or to save, or both. If you're looking for Mother Nature in God's revelation to mankind, you'll find that she is very much a fabrication, just like all the idols of wood that men have made. What you'll find is God acting in creation and on creation hundreds of times in the Bible. You won't find creation acting on itself. Creation has no power either to bless or to curse itself. It has no power either to bless or to curse us. So, what does creation actively do? There are some things the Bible says creation does. Psalm 19 verses 1 and 2. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Of whom? Of God. Psalm 148, verse 3. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all stars of light. Praise Him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for He commanded and they were created. Verse 7 Same psalm. Praise Yahweh from the earth, sea monsters in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind, fulfilling His Word. Creation declares the handiwork of God and creation praises God. It's the same story in the New Testament. When Jesus... Rode into Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday, the religious leaders told told him to rebuke the crowds for praising him. Here's his answer in Luke 19.40. I tell you, if these people become silent, the stones will cry out. Romans 1 says that creation reveals and displays the invisible attributes, the eternal power, and the divine nature of its creator, so that men who deny him and replace him with the work of their own hands have to shove the obvious truth under the rug to do that. Creation reveals and displays God. Creation praises God. Creation does God's bidding. That verse, fire, hail, and snow... Clouds, stormy wind, fulfilling His Word. Creation is an instrument in the hands of God. James chapter 5 says that the prophet Elijah prayed and God withheld rain for three years, producing a terrible famine in the land. And then Elijah prayed again and the rains returned. Did he pray to the clouds? No. He prayed to the God who made them. The examples of God directly controlling things that we dub, that we call natural disasters, is all over the Bible. Things don't just happen in God's creation, beloved. But what creation does not do is act on itself. Such a notion is so foreign from the Bible as to be preposterous. And there are two more things creation does. Creation waits and creation groans. Creation eagerly awaits the final restoration of people to God. Isaiah 55 verse 12 says, The mountains and the hills will burst into song, and the trees of the field will clap their hands in celebration of what? Of the restoration of God's people to God. Romans chapter 8, Verses 18 to 23 says that, and I'll just summarize, creation longs anxiously and waits eagerly for deliverance from its slavery to corruption. And how did it become enslaved to corruption? Because of us. Because of our sin against God. God put us in charge of it, made it our domain, and we rebelled against Him with a high hand. And so He cursed us, and He cursed the domain that He had Put it under our stewardship. Creation groans because it suffers under the curse that God imposed on it and on us because of our sin. Creation didn't sin, we did. Why will creation be so excited about the full and final redemption of human beings? Because its well being depends entirely on our well being and not the other way around not the other way around i hope you see the relevance of that to what we're dealing with right now the corruption and decay and entropy and violence that makes the whole of god's creation groan and cry out to him for deliverance is because of our offense against god it's not because of creation's offense against us god gave us dominion not the over creation not the other way around okay i belabored that too long When it looks to us, when it looks to us, friends, like creation is opposing us or afflicting us or killing us, we're confusing instrument with source. The source and sovereign ruler of absolutely everything that affects our well being and the well being of all of creation is God and God alone. All blessing and all curse are in his hands and in no other hands everything else is just an instrument an instrument used by god to accomplish his purposes and what was god's purpose toward egypt what will god what what will god be purposing to bring about when all of these painful things come upon egypt Please listen carefully as I read the rest of the chapter, verses 18 through 25. To me, this is one of the most astonishing declarations that God makes in the Old Testament about his purpose for the temporary effects of the curse. And it's all about how he purposes, uses those effects of the curse to turn the hearts of lost people to himself, so that they may be saved. Verse 18, in that day, when God pours out all of these harsh judgments on Egypt that we've already looked at, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to Yahweh of hosts. One will be called the City of Destruction. In that day there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to Yahweh near its border and it will become a sign and a witness to Yahweh of hosts in the land of Egypt for they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors and listen and he will send them a savior and a champion The New American Standard Bible I believe rightly capitalizes those two words he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. Thus, the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. That's what God is doing in the hearts of people through the curse. Says they will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to Yahweh and perform it. And then listen, verse 22, And Yahweh will strike Egypt, striking, but healing, so that they will return to Yahweh, and He will respond to them, and He will heal them. Isn't that glorious? Verse 23, In that day, listen to these last, these last few verses. This, this would have blown the socks off of any Israelite that was reading this or paying attention to this. And it should blow our socks off too. listen. In that day, when God dispenses all of these painful things on Egypt, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians will come into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria. Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria A blessing in the midst of the earth whom Yahweh of hosts has blessed saying blessed is Egypt my people and Assyria the work of my hands and Israel my inheritance what a promise what a purpose what a beautiful magnificent purpose What is God's purpose for the calamities and the economic and social upheaval that He's going to bring about in Egypt by the waving of His hand and His creation? His purpose, friends, is to turn the heart of unbelieving Egyptians to Himself and to make them His own people. And that purpose will be accomplished. A lot of people are going to miss what God is really doing through this pandemic, and that's very sad, but I hope you won't be one of them. A lot of people are going to miss the life and death lessons from our Creator that every human being who's still walking after this should have burned into his heart. They're going to hear of alleged failures, lapses of judgment, and perhaps even crimes committed by world leaders that have contributed to the loss of life and livelihood from COVID-19. They're going to look at all the confusion and contradiction among leaders of men and nations and medical institutions about how to fix the problem as as this whole thing has progressed, and they're going to point fingers in every direction but one. They're going to blame everyone and everything but themselves. They're going to refuse to admit that their own sin Their own grievous violation of God's character and holiness is as much to blame as any other person's for every outworking of the curse. They're going to look at the economic upheaval that has so far put roughly 22 million people out of work in this country alone, and what are they going to do with it? They're going to make demands about what's owed to them instead of humbly asking God how He would have them attend to the needs of others. That will be a a very badly missed opportunity, especially, especially for believers. But here will be the most epic and catastrophic failure for very many people. Instead of fearing and trusting the one who actually controls pandemics, who purposes to use pandemics, they're going to fear and trust the people whom they are convinced finally got this pandemic under control. They're going to blame the terrible impact of this virus on one of Mother Nature's temper tantrums and maybe on some people who helped it along. And they're going to celebrate the fact that human beings once again got that fickle tyrant Mother Nature under control. And what they're going to completely miss in the process is that the one who has controlled every single thing that has happened because of this virus ever since patient zero first contracted it, and long before that, is God and God alone. And they're going to miss the exceedingly important worldview-defining truth that he has been purposeful in every bit of this, and at the very heart of his purpose, his, his intention to turn the hearts of men and women and children to himself, that they might be saved forever. Already, people are growing more and more confident that human beings are going to get this thing under control. In the short term, that may very well be what it looks like. Recoveries are already exceeding new hospitalizations in many parts of the world. Hospitals in most of the world are not being overwhelmed right now. Estimates from world leaders about the total number of deaths from COVID-19 are being revised sharply downward. Most of the talk on the news in the last several days is all about getting back to normal. Guys, that's not what we want. We don't want to get back. We don't want the world to get back to normal. There's a growing sense among the masses of humanity that the worst is over, That, and that part may well be correct, and that we're getting a handle on this thing. That part is catastrophically and fatally wrong. The simple reality is this. If our response to such a powerful outworking of the curse And our response to the merciful end of that outworking is to conclude that we've mastered the curse. We are fools of the highest order. Friends, a day is very soon coming when any appearance that people have control over any part of their own well-being is going to crumble like a sandcastle in a tsunami. And when that day comes... God is going to dispense plagues and famines and hailstorms of fiery hail and mighty armies throughout the whole earth. He will overturn the institutions of man. He will destroy any sense of security that men have placed in money and possessions. And what remains of mankind in that day will have a very, very short time to get the point and to turn their hearts to God. And most will not. Most will will not the way is narrow and few are they who enter by it and that brings us to god's other purpose toward unbelievers in the temporary effects of the curse this other purpose will never apply to those who trust in jesus christ there is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in christ jesus romans 8 1. here's that other purpose The same calamities on earth that God uses to humble the hearts of people and to turn them to Himself will also be used by God to seal the condemnation of those who persist in rejecting Him until their last breath. The temporary curse is gracious. It's a long line of second chances. It's gracious except for those who will not turn to God in faith. For them... The gracious and forbearing work of God through the curse will only serve to mark them off as fully deserving of their eternal condemnation. You don't want to be in that mass of humanity that takes its last last breath trusting something other than God, fearing something other than God. Trust in Jesus today. Today. And watch God take every cursed thing that has ever happened in your life and work it to eternal blessing starting right now. If you're a believer, the moment you came to faith in Jesus Christ, everything that ever happened to you, everything that will ever happen to you, this side of heaven got moved from the might be eternally bad for you category to the will be eternally good for you category forever. And notice I didn't say it got moved from the bad category to the good category. Pandemics aren't good. They're part of the curse that God imposed on man and creation because of our sin. And the curse is, by definition, bad. Death is bad. Illness is bad. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. And the sin that brought down the curse from God's hand is all bad. But if you put your trust in Jesus while you still have breath, the God who is purposeful in all things will use every bad thing and every good thing that has ever happened to you for His glory and for your good. Romans 8.28 says, And we know, we know because He told us that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. Purpose. If an unbeliever asks you why would a good God allow something as terrible as COVID-19 to happen, you might ask him, would you be asking me that same question if you believed what God actually says? That he uses everything that happens in his creation to turn the hearts of sinners to Christ so that we will be forever saved and blessed. And if he says, but nothing good could ever come from something this bad, beloved, lead him to the cross. Tell him that God used the very worst, most unjust, most terrible event that ever happened under the sun to bring about the very best, most just, and most magnificent gift to mankind that any of us will ever receive loving and merciful father may today be the day that you turn the hearts of anyone hearing this who has not humbly come to you we ask that you would be adding many souls to your kingdom through this painful time we ask that you will make us who belong to you brilliant lights in the darkness make us bold and courageous to speak of your entire sovereignty over your creation And of your gracious purpose, even in the worst things that happen on this earth. To turn the hearts of people to yourself. So that they may trust in Jesus. And be covered by his blood. So that they may stand righteous and blameless. Before our great God to dwell with you. And with your people. Forever. We ask it in his magnificent name. Amen.